Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Romans chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been on this journey through the book of Romans. I hope you've been challenged by it. I hope that you've been blessed by it. I know that I've been challenged, and I know that I've been blessed by it. And uh, and so um, so we're continuing through this journey. And uh, I just kind of recap again. Obviously, before we know where we're going, want to just take a look at where we've gone. And uh, we actually started chapter two last week. So we finished chapter one two weeks ago. And then last week, we actually got into chapter two. And from last week, there are two verses that kind of help summarize the journey so far. And uh, the first verse was found in chapter two, verse six. And this is the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul says this in chapter two, verse six. He says, he, referring to God, he will render to each one according to his works. God is going to give everyone according to his works. So in other words, all of mankind will be judged by God based upon what they do. And then in verse 11 of that same chapter, Paul continues, for God shows no partiality. So not only is God going to render to each one according to his works, but then Paul also says that God has no favorites. Uh, Each person will be judged according to the same criteria. He has no favorites. So, So let me ask, this is kind of the big question of the first section of Romans. The big question is this, and I really think it's the question on everybody's heart and mind, but the big question is this, how can one become justified before God? The word justified simply means made right. How can I be made right before God? Or to say it in much more familiar terms, kind of to state it plainly, how do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? Everyone wants to know. And all different religions have all these different ways in which you get to heaven. So what is the Christian religion? How does the Christian get to heaven? Now, theoretically speaking, there are actually two ways you can do it. And some of you probably look at me, you're a heretic, right? Because there's only one way. But theoretically, there are two ways to get to heaven. Now, let let me explain to you what I mean by that. Number one, first way that you can get to heaven is we can keep God's law absolutely, perfectly, all the time, every day, at every moment, without exception, for the rest of our lives. Okay, let me say that again. We can keep God's law absolutely, perfectly, all the time, every day, at every moment, without exception, for the rest of our lives. That's one way. Or we can put our faith in Jesus. We can put our faith in Jesus Christ. And this this is essentially Paul's point. This is what Paul is trying to say in this entire book. This is Paul's point. He's actually spent the first two chapters meticulously explaining why option one is impossible for humanity. Paul's greatest desire is for us to realize that option two is our only hope. Are you ready for this? We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you because I've already broken your laws. 
my shot is over with for option one. I have not absolutely in every moment and every day for my entire life obeyed your law. My shot is done. Option one is over for me. But I'm so thankful because options two is still available that I can be saved by faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So I pray that your word would not come back void. I pray every heart and every mind in here would hear the truth of your gospel. And I pray that that truth would be more beautiful than the sin that we're fighting, that that truth would be more beautiful than the frustrations that we have, that that truth would be so beautiful, Lord God, that it would pierce through all of our armors and defenses. And I pray that your name would be lifted high in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump into chapter two, verse 12, and we're gonna go uh, through 16. I mean, I'll I'll have some pauses. Actually, we'll go a little further than that, but this first section will go 12 through 16. Um, And so scripture reads like this. This is Paul, again, writing a letter to a church in Rome. He says this, for all who have sinned, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Though they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So let's pause there. I want to answer two questions that I think that this verse provokes. Two questions that I think that this verse provokes. Number one, the first question is this. What is the ultimate standard of goodness? Right? So if God is going to judge us, he's going to judge us according to a standard. It's like, what, what is that standard? Uh, how, are, how do we define? How do we know what is right and wrong, what is good or what is bad? Well, Paul says... The standard is certainly not us. No human, whether Jew or Gentile, is good, is worthy. So for Paul, the ultimate standard by which all of mankind is measured is God's perfect, flawless, holy law. And since the law only reflects God's character, the standard is actually God himself. God is the standard by which all mankind is judged. Now, I know that there are many of us in here today, including many Christians in here today, who struggle to believe what Paul is saying is true. Now, let me prove that to you. You may, you struggle to believe what Paul is saying is true. Let me, let me prove that to you. Don't we often struggle with this question? Why does God send good people to hell? Ever thought that? Oh, no, no one's thought that. (laughs) Have you ever thought to yourself, like, if God is so good, well, A, why does he send anybody to hell? But if God is so good, why would he send good people to hell? Because I have a hunch that there are many of us in here that would look at a man like Hitler and would say, okay, you know what? Like, if he can send anyone to hell, like, he can send him. Like, I understand why hell exists for that guy. 
But for the most part, most of us ask the question, well, why does God send good people to hell? And let me tell you what the motivation of your heart is when you, when you say that. Let me tell you why you say that, okay? You're like, well, don't tell me what to do with my life. <laughs> but let me, let me share with you possibly a reason why you might say that. Because you disagree with Paul. You see, our standard on who is good and who is bad is not God, but other people. Like when we say, why does God send good people to hell? We're saying the standard isn't God, but the standard is other people, right? And so our standard on who is good and who is bad is not God, but other people. So, so guess what happens? We compare ourselves to others, don't we? And based on that comparison, we declare some good and some bad. Are you following? This is how religiosity creeps in. Some of you don't think you're religious, but you actually are because you think this way. This is how religiosity creeps in. We celebrate some while we look down on others. We think highly of ourselves while we think lowly of others. We excuse the sin in our lives while we judge and condemn the sin in others. This is what religiosity is. Now, how do we do this? Because we believe that there are some people in this world that are just better than others. So it justifies to follow and say, why does God send good people to hell? When you make that statement, you are judging that there are good people, which means you're also saying that there are what? Bad people. We believe that there are some people in this world that are better than others. Now, what's wrong with that, Pastor Phil? Like, aren't there? <laughs> aren't some people morally superior than others? And you know what I'm gonna say? Sure there are. Some, some might display some kind of outward moral goodness. But Paul argues at some level, even those who look good are contaminated by sin. Paul says, even those that look good are still contaminated by sin. Are you with me? So the problem with mankind, the problem with making ourselves the standard is that we are sinful and finite people. We are sinful and finite people. You see, we're limited in our understanding. We don't see all. We don't know all. We're limited in our knowledge. As a result, are you ready? We lack the ability to consider everyone's personal experience and circumstances. We don't take into account. We don't take into account that person that has gone through trauma. We don't take into account that person that has experienced loss. We don't take into account that, that person who's experienced abuse. We don't take into account that if I walked in their shoes just for one mile, maybe I'd probably be doing the same exact thing. This is crucial. Are you ready? Although the question, why does God send good people to hell, although that question sounds noble, it's actually full of entitlement. Because you are believing that there are some people that are better than others. Talk about white privilege, this is spiritual privilege. It's actually a, a, a religious. Some of you are like, I'm not religious. I never go to church. That's not re religiosity is deeper than that. Religiosity is walking around as if you're better than others. Are you guys with me? 
I'm going to keep saying that because I don't want you to mutiny. Now, listen, look, when the standard is God and not the addict, when the standard is God and not the murderer in the jail cell, when the standard is God alone, we all fall desperately short and need a savior. Do you agree with that? When the standard is God and not the addict, the crackhead, the person on the street, well, they played their cards and they got it wrong. When the standard is God and not the person serving in jail for murder, well, they played their cards and they got it wrong. When the standard is God, all of a sudden, all of humanity, all of humanity desperately falls short and is in need of a savior. But as long as you can pick and choose who deserves it and who doesn't, you'll never need Jesus. So Paul desperately needs to tell you the only way that you can get in is if by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by your works, because if it's by your works, all of us have broken this law. Why? Because the standard of breaking the law is not the person next to me, but it's the righteous, holy God. We all have fallen short. So here's the problem. Yeah, you're a sinner, but so am I too. Here's the problem that the church does. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, we're not. Do you understand that? So if you're going to be a follower of Christ and a lover of the gospel, that means you're going to accept the fact that you are just as depraved as the murderer in the jail cell. I know that's hard to think about. Some of you may still disagree in here, but I'm hoping that what I just worked through will help you understand that that's because you're making the standard other people and not God. The next question that comes to mind is this. Are you ready? Have you ever thought this? How could God judge people who don't know the law? You ever thought that? Like, how else can I put this? Um, like, they don't know God. They, they've never heard of him. Uh, I think this is a great question that has stumbled people for many years. I, I want you to look at verse 14 again. Verse 14 says this. Paul, Paul's writing. He says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, you see that? by nature, do what the law requires. So he says, they don't have the law, but they do by nature what the law requires. Let me break that down. Did you know that pagan nations naturally demonstrate a sense of morality? At some level, all human societies have been given the capacity to determine what is right and what is wrong. Right Now, I know the arguments that are out there, and Pastor Roger here is uh, amazing apologetic, so this is right up his alley. Don't talk to me about it. Talk to it. No kidding. <laughs> you have a question about this? Go to Roger. No, I can help you as well, but, but this is right up his alley, but listen, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is that all societies have demonstrated the fact that there is a right and wrong. Now, these are the arguments, right? Some would argue that is simply an evolutionary necessity. But Paul argues that the fact that there are universal moral laws suggests that there is a universal, universal moral lawgiver. The fact that there is universal moral laws, in other words, all societies exhibit for the good of the community certain behaviors. They discipline certain behaviors. They accept certain behaviors. They exhibit this 
I, this tra- transcending idea of right from wrong, the fact that they can do that means that there is a law, which means that there is a moral lawgiver. And what Paul would say is since that all of mankind bears the, this lawgiver's image, all of mankind instinctually knows his law. Now, look at verse 15. Paul says, and this is fascinating, the law is what? It's written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. Paul argues that our conscience, right? This is your conscience, right? Paul argues that our conscience is a tool given to all mankind by God as image bearers. All of humanity has been given a conscience. It serves as a reminder from the inside that what we've done or what we're about to do is right or wrong. Now, unfortunately, hear me out. The world has learned to suppress it, haven't we? We've learned to ignore it. And the world preaches another gospel, and this gospel says this, bury your conscience. It's not what you do that's wrong, but it's how you think about what you do that's wrong. And so while your conscience is is trying to submerge and tell you, the world would say submerge the conscience, but keep doing the action because it's all about what makes me feel good. Whereas Whereas Paul is saying, no, that conscience is a tool in your life. Now, don't get me wrong. There's good guilt and then there's bad guilt. And so I'm not saying succumb to bad guilt, but I'm just saying there's actually good guilt in your life that speaks volumes to you. Because of this, Paul says the Gentiles actually, even though they don't have the law written to them in the form of the Ten Commandments and the Scriptures, the Gentiles have a law written on their hearts. All of humanity has a law. God's law has been written on their hearts, and it comes up via the conscience. And so Paul says, and again, this partners with what Paul was already doing in chapter one, the Gentile world is without excuse. For though they may have never heard a sermon, though they may have never read a Bible, they violate their conscience regularly, which is enough evidence in the court of a righteous law to condemn them as image bearers who have broken God's law. Are you with me? Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with this. I'm just trying to logically break down the Christian position. Now, if the Gentiles who do not have the written law are condemned, then how much more, Paul is saying, you Jews who have the law and break it are condemned. So Paul says, look, you Jews that are saying, yep, those sinners, those heathens, right? He says, all of you good people in the church, you think you're so good and you're pointing your fingers, all those bad people out there. Paul says, well, wait a minute. They break the law. Yes, they're without excuse, but guess what? You break the law too. And you have the word of God in front of you. How much more are you? He says, you're not off the hook. So let's read verse 17, and then we're going to go all the way to 29, and then that's where we'll end for today. Verse 17 reads like this. This is Paul talking to the Jews now. He says, but you, (laughs) but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, sounds like Christians, right? 
<laughs> but if you call yourself a Christian and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructors of the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher to the children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? I feel like Paul's writing to all these televangelists. And maybe not just televangelists. And there are some good televangelists. Sorry, guys, I'm not all of them. But there are churches as well, right? Oh, he, he says, you, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Isn't that crazy? And listen to this. And some of you who don't, maybe you're, this is your first time to church or whatever, you're going to be like, amen. To this. You're gonna, this is the first time you're going to amen. You never thought you'd amen in church. But here it is. Paul says, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, the the, the non-believing world hates God because the believing world are hypocrites. That deep? That heavy? Let's continue. And Paul says, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I'll explain this in a minute. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have writ the written code but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from the man, but from God. You know what he's saying there? He's saying the reason why you obey the law is because you want people to praise you. He says, but the man who is, God's done something in their heart, that's the man that doesn't live for the praise and the applause of the people, but he lives for their praise and applause of God. So let's stop there, and that'll be as far as we go in Scripture today, and we're going to kind of push through. Paul warns his own people, and he warns us today. Are you ready? Here's, here's what he warns us, to break it down really simply. He warns us that good theology and external religious activity won't save you. Good theology, you may know the Bible well, but that won't save you. And external religious activity won't save you. Now listen, the Jews argued we don't need Jesus to justify us before God because we have the law. So the Jews in Paul's day would say, yeah, we believe in that you are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Yeah, the pagans need that. But we don't need Jesus because we already have the law. In other words, we've been given God's knowledge. We know what he likes. We know what he doesn't like. Over the centuries, he has spoken directly to our prophets, and we have access to his scriptures. Paul, Paul is saying, and don't get me wrong, these are all great things, but they can't save you. Why? Why? And this is sobering. 
I want you guys to get this part. This can't save you because you can know a lot about God, but actually not know God. Right? We have some stat geniuses in here. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're on that fantasy football, and you draft a guy, and he's your guy. You, you start calling him by his nickname, his first name, you know, all his stats, you know, how many touchdowns he scored, what he's projected to score. And then it gets a little crazier. You start knowing his wife's name, his son's name, his dog's name, his favorite cereal, right? All of a sudden, you're just knowing all these things about your favorite players. But the reality is, is you know a lot of data, but you don't have any personal knowledge. That's what Paul is saying about theologians. That's what Paul is saying about pastors and preachers, Some. You may know a lot about God. You have all this data about him, but you don't know my God, which is why there can be someone in this room who's poor, who can't go to Bible school. There's someone in this room who can't preach. You can't stand up and teach people. Paul would say, you know my God better than the man who's on the pulpit talking about God. Are you with me? Paul's saying, look, having the law Having God's word, it's not a bad thing. It's a great thing, but it's not going to save you. Paul's telling the Jews, God's law is good, but it's limited. Did you know this? The law only has the power to condemn you because it only has the power to point out sin. So the Bible, it's a mirror. This is about the most power it has. All it's got to do is, all it has, the Bible, when it comes up, it just, ooh, that's ugly which is why some of us don't like this word, right? Because it comes up and it just shows you all your, and I, this, is a, this is something I, when I always say, I always think about this, but it's like, you know, us ladies back in the day used to have your little compacts. I know we don't do that no more because you have, I don't know, you take selfies now. I don't know how you look at yourself now, right? But some of you guys now, right? When men were men, right? Not anymore, you carry compacts. I'm kidding, that's a joke. Uh, but, but here's the thing, I shouldn't have went there. Here we go, here we go. The Bible is a mirror and, and and ladies and, and guys, we love the mirror, don't we? Y'all love the mirror. Y'all take selfies with a mirror. Clean your mirrors, though, before you take a selfie, though. You got a pretty person taking this ugly selfie because the mirror is all messed up. But look, what, what, what Paul is saying is the Bible is a mirror. And I don't get it because we love the mirror in the physical world, but in the spiritual world, we hate the mirror. Isn't that crazy how that works? Well, let's, let's work that out. Why do we love the mirror? Well, because the mirror kind of reveals things that are out of place. And so before we step out, we want to make sure we don't step out looking out of place. But Paul says here, the word of God is a mirror, and so that's good. The word of God has, a, has the ability to reveal your sin, but it doesn't have the ability to take it away. That's what the law does. You know, when we first started Inspired Church, if you've been with us from the beginning, God bless you. <laughs> Um, when we first started Inspire, uh, theology was actually a core value of ours. You guys remember that? Theology, community, and mission was a core value of ours. And the way we defined theology was simply knowing God rightly through his word. And it really was like one of the most important things. And, and, and it still is today, but right theology is not enough. You can know scripture and not know Jesus. Preachers can preach the text and still miss the gospel. Can I go on a little bit of a practical tangent? I'm going to get just a little discipleship tangent. How's my time here? Yeah, the front row says you're great. It's all 1230. You're great. I'm going to go on a little tangent, but I promise I'll come back. Uh, my heart, my heart for you 
My heart for this church um, is, is for all of us in here not to become members of Inspire Church, but to become members of the body of Christ. Now, the implications of that are so, there's so many, but I just want to focus on one. And again, I would hope that you would take this into consideration because this is just a real discipleship moment. It's with that in mind, I want to say this. We live in the Bay. It's expensive. (laughs) There may come a time when you'll have to move. There may come a time where God will call you away. There may come a time where maybe you won't move, God won't call you away, but you'll look for another church. It happens. If that day ever comes, which I hope it doesn't, but if it does, please listen for the gospel as you discern a new church to attend. Churches can have the best programs and the best community outreaches. They can woo you with great music and amazing productions. You know what I hear often? They have a great kids ministry, Pastor Phil. It's a great kids ministry out there. We moved and we just looked for the church with the best kids ministry, right? They have a great youth group. They could even have a pastor who's relevant and always says exactly what you feel you need to hear. But if the gospel is not central, keep looking. Keep looking. Sometimes it's not the biggest church in the neighborhood. Sometimes it's not the one that's doing the most for the community, although that's a great thing, and we talked about that, and I believe that a church that is in the gospel should be in the community. But I want to tell you something. When you go to look for a church, you should look for a church where the gospel is evident because there's a possibility that people can be preaching from this but not really knowing what this is all about. Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you'll be saved. You'll find salvation. He says, but don't you know the scriptures speak of me? So I don't just preach the scriptures, but I preach the scriptures and I find Christ and his gospel in the scriptures. Are you guys with me on that? Paul tells us having the Bible, studying the Bible and even knowing the Bible will not justify you before God. You know how many people are gonna know, memorize scriptures that God's gonna say, I don't know you? We are saved, are you ready? By faith alone in Christ alone. Now, the Jews argued again. They argued again. They said, okay. He says, well, we don't need Jesus to justify us, Paul, because we have circumcision. We have circumcision, right? We have, and I, you know, I contemplate, should I explain what that is? But y'all get it. We have an outward, external ritual that makes us and marks us as children of God. Right? Circumcision was a cutting of the body, <laughs> as a sign that one belonged to God. It was a ritual that had been given to the children of Israel uh, by God. In fact, it had been given to the father of the nation, Abraham, by God, and practiced by Jews for thousands of years. No other nation marked themselves in this way. It was an outward sign of an inward reality showing that you and your offspring belonged to God. But Paul corrects them in saying, just because your body has been marked does not in any way indicate that your heart has been marked. You with me? 
just another story. I see this happening in many ways today. Like there's many ways. Um, but in my mind, as I was thinking through this, I've seen this a lot in the last several years of doing ministry, not just here, but in a lot of places we go. Um, this happens a lot with baptisms. Let me explain. Uh, people think that just because they've been baptized, they're in. They're in, man. Right? They're, they're good with God. So kind of baptism becomes this sacred ritual by which people justify themselves before God. And you can tell people are doing this and believe this for a few reasons. I can tell because for some, man, the decision to get baptized is like so, there's so much anxiety. It's just like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to get baptized. Like, you know, it's baptized. There's so much anxiety in that decision, right? And in a way, this struggle is kind of refreshing, right? Like, I appreciate that. Like, this is sacred to some people. Don't get me wrong, right? But if the decision to get baptized is full of too much fear, it shows that the person might be placing more emphasis on the outward ritual than on what that outward ritual is supposed to already represent. Like the hard thing was giving your life to Christ. Like baptism is just an outward representation of what you already did. But if you're so fearful of this because you have put too much, this is it, this is man, if I get baptized, I gotta, right? But it's just like, well, wait a minute. I think you put too much emphasis on the external outward thing to justify you, which leads me to believe that maybe you didn't quite understand what went on here. Now for others, it's a little different. They're all in before baptism. They are all in. But once they get baptized, it's like, gone, gone, out. They got their badge. That was all they needed. I'm baptized now. Now I can do whatever I want. I got, and so up to baptism, you know, what, church, what do you want me to do? You know, there's all these different, and even that is external in itself, right? And then they get baptized and I never see them again. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not trying to condemn or push guilt, but I'm just trying to say, like, I can see that people have put so much on this external ritual. This is the point that Paul is trying to drive home. Outward rituals are only signs of what is really taking place inside of the heart. If your heart hasn't changed, then your ritual and your traditions are meaningless. Right? They're nothing. Let me ask you a question. Who's more faithful to their wives? A man who wears his wedding ring every day but cheats on her or a man who never wears his wedding ring but never cheats? Who's more faithful? Well, for all of us, I think most of us in here, unless you're like really controlling, you say, you know what? I wish you wear your wedding ring, honey, but you are a good man. You're faithful. And so what is the wedding ring? It really is just an outward symbol of what's supposed to be inward in my heart. That's what the ring is. But sometimes what we do is we put all the emphasis on this and we're not faithful here. I'm going to conclude with this and invite the team to come up. At the end of chapter two, Paul makes a very important statement. He makes a very important statement in verse 29. He says this, ready? Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. 
Remember I described to you circumcision is an outward cutting, right? Can I just say this? And again, we're, we're kind of, we're landing the plane here and getting ready to finish. There is a cutting away that God wants to accomplish that goes well beyond the surface in your life. There's a cutting away and a cutting out, something that would mark you that you have given your life to him and that him only will you serve and you won't bow down to the gods of this culture. And so God says, man, I'm gonna have to cut you and it's gonna hurt you. But that cutting away and that cutting out is of your heart is a representation that you have given your life completely over to me and that you are not bowing to any other gods. God is not interested in marking our bodies. He desires to mark our hearts. Now, contrary to what you might have been taught, and this might sting a little bit, contrary to what you might have been taught or what you might believe, no amount of biblical knowledge, scripture memorization, or theological training can make this kind of mark. No external activity of ritualistic tradition can justify you before God. Are you ready for this? Just because you wear a cross around your neck does not mean you love Jesus. Just because you're a member of this church. That's another, you know that's another external ritual? You're a member of a church and so you think you're okay? Just because you're a member of Inspired Church does not mean you know Jesus. How about this? Just because you attended a church one day and you raised your hand and you repeated the sinner's prayer does not mean that you're justified before the Lord. There's a whole generation of people that have been, have placed their confidence in a moment in which they raised their hands and they repeated a sinner's prayer. But that outward ritualistic thing didn't represent what was going on in your heart. I'm not bagging that. I'm not bagging the sinner's prayer. I'm not saying raising your hand, repeating a prayer is bad and we shouldn't do it. But what I am saying is we shouldn't allow people to put so much trust and so much confidence in this. And then they get to, they stand before the Lord that day. And the Lord says, I wage you by your heart, not by your hand being raised. Only those, are you ready? Only those who by the conviction of the Holy Spirit who have repented of their hard hearts and placed their faith in Jesus are truly justified before God and enabled by the Spirit to live a new life characterized by obedience to God's word. Not a perfect life. (laughs) And it's a struggle. I'm not gonna say Christianity and you're gonna all of a sudden get it all, right? And it's just gonna be so amazing. There'll be some parts you're gonna fight with. There's gonna have tensions. You're gonna wrestle but what you're doing is in giving your life to Christ and making him the center of your life, the lover of your soul and loving him, you're saying is, I'm gonna bow before you and I'm gonna follow you and I may fall and I may fail and I may fight and I may have some tensions and some wrestlings and some discouragements and some doubts and some fears, some frustrations. I'm not promising a life that any, but what I'm saying is in the midst of that, I'm gonna trust you more than I trust my feelings, more than I trust my circumstances, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna trust you, and I'm gonna make you Lord overall. And I think we said this a couple of weeks ago, and I'll finish with this. 
A true Christian, a believer who's maturing in their faith is someone who is growing in their awareness of sin and their awareness of their need for Jesus. If you've been a Christian for 30 years, you should be more humbler, not more prideful. If you wanna know if you've been growing in the Lord, one of the, thing, one of the marks of growing, and there's several, but one of the marks is that you're becoming more aware of your sin and more of your need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, according to Paul, we all need Jesus. The people out there and the people in here, which is why Inspired Church is built on the gospel because only the gospel can bring Jesus to a world that needs him, but also to a church that constantly finds itself falling and hypocritical. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to reflect just for a quick moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed, or however you want to create a sacred space. Create a space where you're at right there in your heart. We're just gonna softly sing to the Lord. And in this song, we hope that you just would use it as a time of reflection. If you wanna join in and sing too, you wanna stand, you wanna sit, you wanna cry, you wanna, do, you wanna be loud, you wanna be quiet, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna pray us out in a moment, but I just wanna reflect on this word. I wanna digest on it before we leave. And so let's just softly create a space with the Lord and then we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We're so thankful that we could gather in a place to learn about you, but also to create a space where we could get to know you. And I pray that Inspire Church and the congregation that would gather here would be a church that would not just be marked by knowing scriptures, but would be marked by a church, would be marked by a heart that has been cut and transformed and reshaped by the gospel. And so, Jesus, you are at the center. We place you there. And we recognize that even as Christians, sometimes we remove you from that place. And we put you back on the throne today. Every week, we identify idols. We expose them. And we put you back on the throne. And so, before we get ready to leave and become a witness to the world, we first repent and believe the gospel. We repent. And if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ in this room, there's anyone in this room that feels like I'm far from God. I don't know how to be made right by him. And you've been judging your, your distance from God based on what you do. Well, I do this. I'm a sinner. I do this. I do that. I, and today, I just want to obliterate that. I want to tell you that your salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works, lest any man would boast. And so I want to invite you to come back to Jesus, not come back to church, not come back to a set of laws or a set of rules but to come back to the person, the man named Jesus, who died in your place, took God's wrath for you so that you won't have to experience it. And if you would just truly sit there and say, you know what, I admit I am a sinner, I fall short, and it is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you just put your hope and your trust in Jesus? He's the only way. He's the only way. So God, we thank you. Our worship is a response to the beauty of that gospel. I thank you that I don't have to fulfill the law perfectly because I have failed. But I thank you that you've made a way. You've made a way. And so we love you. And when we leave this place, our entire life is worship. It's a response to that goodness. 
And so I pray that we would respond every day, not just on Sundays for 20 minutes during songs, but that worship would be at our workplace. We would worship in our work. We would worship with our coworkers. We'd worship in our school. We'd worship in our homes. We would respond to the beauty of that gospel. So Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for another beautiful day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen and amen. We love you. We'll see you this week at Connects. Find a home and let's have a good time. God bless you. Enjoy your Sunday. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.